0: Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Colander and every month I speak to a former Oxford student about their memories of their university days, the impact of their studies and their career. Each interview often focuses on one subject, be that maths, politics or anything else. This month we are lucky enough to be talking to a true polymath and pioneer. Our conversation is going to touch on medicine, art and everything in between. Our interviewee is Dr. Desiree Cox, the first Rhodes Scholar from the Bahamas. She studied medicine at Oxford and later gained a PhD in history from Cambridge. She has worked as a medical doctor, university professor, and is a leading figure in the stem cell industry in the Bahamas. Dr. Desiree Cox, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Hi, thank you very much, Guy.
0: Firstly, can you tell us about how you came to study at Oxford?
1: I was 16. A young Indian girl came to my high school in the bombs, and um, we were both at the top of the class, and so it was a joy kind of having somebody that you could compete with. And she tells me that um, she's about to do the Oxford entrance exam, I have a vague knowledge of what Oxford is. I've heard the term before, but it was, it was not in my world at all. I'd grown up in the Bahamas in a tough urban area uh, known as the over-the-hill area. <laughs> wrong side of the big, tracks. Wrong side of the tracks. And so the more she told me about all these requirements, uh, and the more I refuted her, and she said, no, it needs to be there It was clear. that You know, it couldn't could be this time around. So I just back her. You're going now. I'll go to McGill first, but I'll meet you there. Professor mentions Rhodes scholarship. I get the Rhodes after my second try, and I will never forget that October. It was the culmination of imagination and dreaming and magical realism, almost, and I was excited, and it was recently awesome. and said, so, well, did it live up to your expectations? I would say without a doubt. What I really appreciate about about Oxford was there was just um, a veracity for both competition and learning and knowing and information gathering and it was it was absolutely right for me.
0: And when you arrived, what were your first impressions of Oxford? This was 1987. Yes, but 87. There was
1: so much going on. There were lots of clubs. There was the. Uh, physical beauty of the place, the aesthetic beauty of the place, I was very struck by that. Really quickly after that, I had an absolute sense that, okay, that was all really interesting, but there was some serious work that had happened. I was, after all, studying medicine, and very quickly there was a long... <laughs> list of books to read and work hard and play hard and somehow balance all of those and work out what the traditions around those were like.
0: And you're part of the Rhodes Scholar community, what was that like?
1: That was delightful. It was the best of both worlds for me. It was the undergraduate pen book experience, and then the roads, because these were people who were like me in that they'd done another degree before coming, uh, but they were either doing an undergraduate, mostly doing an undergraduate degree, some doing a graduate degree. They were intent on changing the world and rich ideas and lots of conversation and exploration. You felt like you belonged to these two very rich uh, creative thinking worlds and mind-opening. Their backgrounds were very different, their perspectives were very different.
0: And what did you learn from studying medicine at Pembroke as a Rhodes Scholar?
1: Uh, I finished the first two years, Uh, then I go to the John Radcliffe and I just found myself fascinated by the factors and forces that shape and influence medicine. Why did it look like this? Why was this the way you taught it? While in the hospital, you are. (laughs) There's a way you guys look and talk and engage, and there's an expectation, it's a performance. Um, So all of Susan Sontag's work was significant to me, Um, all of of the Sacks. These people who were around me and mentioned those names and Steered me in the direction of that reading greatly enriched my perspective on medicine while I was learning medicine, which is qu- quite unique. You know, I can see that I may have done medicine and come out of it and then read about that, but I was learning the material while understanding all of these multiple views of it at the same time. It was almost exactly right for me. I've worked in the consulting world that's understanding how drugs get to market, so the consulting pharmaceutical industry what do you think about to get a drug to market, all the publication plannings around that, there's that strand I've uh, worked in the research aspect of medicine, looking at the the softer well-being, how do you do research or structure um, investigations around softer things like well, programs that are about wellness, that, uh, and how do you know whether that um, meditation course actually uh, caused a shift? And what's the association? So trying to do research that is um, on that edge of medicine. Uh, I've applied the practices or the stuff I've learned from healthcare to urban health, urban renewal where you're doing something that's much more multidisciplinary. You're connecting after school programs with music um, with uh, public health social health, social determinants of health so you're looking at the stuff that shapes 80% of our health which is place of the place where you live, your occupation your gender, your religion, your educational level, your socioeconomic class, spearheading or getting the stem cell industry off the ground in the Bahamas, is globally significant. It's globally significant because it's about expanded access to high quality new paradigm medicines that are safe, that are ethical, that are efficacious. So 2013, 2014, the Bahamas followed a ver- followed Japan, followed Japan, but it used the same legal structure as Japan does for creating a regulatory framework. For
0: stem cell. For stem cell
1: regenerative medicine. And so that's you, you find you have find that you have the laws, but now how do you actually create a system on the ground? And that's what I've been doing for the last two years. And we now have about, uh, we've certainly reviewed ethical analysis for like 16 or 20 applications, set up a system for the way that would work, and four, going on five major international uh, research and development programs with connections to interna- reputable international universities. So that's very exciting because the next generation of the next Silicon Valleys will be in the developing world. Technical, digital advancement means that you're gonna have a lot of new talent, medical talent, tech talent, scientific talent in these developing world spaces. Mm -hmm. Creating a regulatory framework that's outside of the FDA and the uh, European Medical Association uh, really puts somewhere like the Bahamas in in a unique space to have a regulated um, science and development space for uh, new treatments. A developing world country can create the landscape, the legal landscape for me. It doesn't have to contend with all the structures, And so I think the, the future is to have uh, a lot more investment in early uh, prototypes work so we talk about phase one to um to b three trials there's phase zero when you're just developing the prototype a lot more investment than that and phase four if you can think of it that that, that way which means the drug is out on the market but what you're wanting or the therapies on the market stem cell regenerative medicine therapies on that market what you want is very good quality real world data in real time how do you create the early framework for something new and unexpected to thrive? And so the focus has been to focus on adaptive learning environments so that you have an ethics committee that's learning about, this, taking in the knowledge and you're you're creating an ecosystem for something new to develop.
0: So um, what types of diseases, conditions, can stem cell research promise to alleviate?
1: I think almost a whole range of them. I mean, almost too much to list. So there's the ones that fall into the neurological box, uh, orthopedic cases, certainly we're seeing um, cases like that. But it's also what stem cells can be linked to, so linking to small molecules and um, all kinds of things that then allow you to treat... Weird cancers and all kinds of things. See, for me, that still fits into a paradigm of disease cure, uh, health as the absence of disease, or health, you know, health equals disease kind of thing. Much more interesting to me is uh, uh, the approach that's about how can you get ahead of aging and frailty. So I'd like to see um, the work. Uh, stem cell regenerative medicine, uh, developments being focused on preventive um, work, preventive health. How can we use it in in a preventive way?
0: You're also a painter and singer, writer and poet. So where do you get your artistic inspiration?
1: I paint with my hands a lot. I paint with brushes, but I love the kind of, visceral part of painting. I use oil paints. You come out and you feel completely refreshed, even though before you went in, you had no idea that you needed to be refreshed. Like Some blocks have moved around in your head or your brain, so it always feels really grounding.
0: As well as all your own incredible achievements, you succeed in bringing out the best in others. And you spoke at Pembroke in June, about how people can decode their natural talents, yeah. and what are the keys to unlocking success?
1: I guess the big thing I wanted to get across there is you can take the route of trying to force yourself into the latest box, only to find that by the time as you've gotten yourself around and to fit yourself in there, the box is gone or has changed. And that's going to be the constant story. Or you can follow a kind of Peter Drucker approach, which is the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. And so the Pembroke Talk was really about just that. I still think the most disruptive thing you can do in the world of short attention spans, short term is actually open the space for authentic conversation. That is like, you know what, that sounds great, but I when I tried it, it didn't quite work out for me in that way, and I found this to be much more useful. And I found the audience wonderful, Because I felt like, okay, he was seeding something for them to work on with themselves. I I want people to leave with a couple of key points. Everyone has natural talent. Everyone has unique potential. All life is precious. They might sound trite, but I believe them to be fundamental. And I believe them to be worth saying. Life has been devalued. I would sooner shoot you down if I don't agree with your saying. spend a day in your shoes. So reiteration of the value of life, the importance of hope, the importance of resilience, the sense of hope and resilience as a way of being, not as a kind of uh, ornament. But <laughs> liberty is a way of being. The second thing to get is the radar that we live by the basic, the main news, the headlines, whatever. In my opinion, that is broken. A lot of really powerful, interesting things are going on in small spaces and people that are. Um, creating new ways, growing new stuff, and that as you try to navigate this path, it's worth finding those places. This is not something we can do on our own. Someone might look at you and say, oh my God, that woman's talent is for this. They can see it as plain as they, and you cannot see it. You're still grappling for what it is. And storytelling I came to as critical, I think in this new world it's going to be if you don't learn to tell your story in a way that is powerful if you don't show someone why x y and z connect in that way and why these are the assets that you bring to it and why that thing it is they need doing requires those things even though they haven't haven't advertised for it or seen it you're able to make the gap between this is what i did and this is what's happened and this is why you need those. That is actually your job to do. It's not your employer's job to do. It's not the person who's looking for uh, help in, in, in a particular area to do. So if you don't want to do that, I think you're severely disadvantaged. I think um, the skill of being able to tell a good story, or if you can't do it, knowing that you need it, and therefore uh, teaming up with someone else who does that is critical. And my final point was hammering Home, who have for me education as a proxy for empowerment. That will become much more the case. At the same time, that there will need to be an evolution in what we call education. That idea that you come to a university, you come for the content is kind of beside the point, because by the time it's you're about to graduate, the content is outdated. But the core processes for evolution, development, thinking, imagination, those core processes um, need to uh, be much more uh, mainstream players in education.
0: Dr. Desiree Cox, thank you very much for sharing your incredible and inspirational life story. For more episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.